As I told you last week, we've got some celebrities with us this morning. Uh, you've seen their faces on TV, uh, on the monitors for probably, what, two and a half years now. And uh, some of you have met them in the community and gotten to, to see them and say, hey, I've seen your face on our monitors. Uh, they've been here before. They've been able to share with us. And so this morning, we have the privilege of, uh, of having Mark and Callie Wisenhunt. And I'm going to invite Mark up. And as he comes, I'll just remind you, we exist. Sulphur Community Church exists so that we might make much of God in our neighborhood and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ. And this is a couple that we have, uh, as a church, uh, decided we are uh, supporting, that we are both financially and in prayer. Uh, If you were to come early on Sunday mornings uh, and pray with us in the gym, you're going to see their name on our prayer list as they go to bring the gospel to an unreached people group. Our desire is to partner with them, and that's where we are. So this morning, I'll let Mark, because I don't want to steal anything that he might say, I'll let Mark share what God has done recently and uh, what they're looking for in the coming weeks. Cool. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, So for those of you who don't know us, my name is Mark Wisenhunt, and that is my wife, Callie, and baby Wisenhunt is in there growing every day. So uh, that's who we are. I'm from Hammond, Louisiana, and she is here uh, from Lake Charles. And we met uh, at Louisiana Tech in northern Louisiana uh, at the BCM, the Baptist Collegiate Ministry. Um, Got involved there, got involved in church up there, um, graduated, got married, ended up coming back here to Lake Charles, uh, where I got a job working here in Sulphur, and Callie got a job working at our church in Lake Charles, Sale Street Baptist Church. And that was our our life. We uh, bought a new house, a new car, uh, got a dog, and named him Rustin after our favorite city. And uh, man, all all of our plans were to stay here and retire until we took a class called Perspectives, um, which if you haven't heard of that class, um, I would recommend you take it. It is a missions class, so it is important for people like me and Callie, but it is equally uh, as important for you. Um, those of you who, who stay and support um, doesn't mean you can't go. Um, maybe going for you looks like going into the community, going to your neighbor's house, um, things like that. So we took a class called Perspectives, um, and through that class, through, uh, through people at Sale Street and um, through reading God's Word and prayer, um, we decided to go to the uh, the nations, to India specifically, uh, to reach one of these unreached people groups. So there are thousands of these groups all over the world. Um, a lot of them don't have access to a church in their own language. They don't have access to a Bible in their own language. And so uh, Callie and I knew that we wanted to go to uh, just one of these groups and to plant a mature church that would be there long after we're gone. And so we knew that we needed training. Uh, Who knows how to go and learn a language and survive in um, one of these countries in in these hard-to-reach places? We didn't. And so all of last year, 2015, uh, went to a training organization called Radius International in Tijuana, Mexico, where we learned from a lot of uh, our teachers who who did that. They went to one of these um, hard-to-reach groups, and they planted a church, and then they came back to teach Um, people like me and Callie who wanted to go. And so uh, graduated from Radius uh, this past December, and since January, um, we have joined our sending agency called Chris Star, 
And since then, we have been raising support, uh, prayer support. We needed 100 daily prayer partners, and we have more than that, over 100. Uh, so praise the Lord for that. And we are at um, 100%. We're fully funded, uh, ready to go. And um, man, thank you guys. Um, a lot of that is from you. A lot of you have been with us from from the beginning, from those uh, hard discussions on, hey, should we go or should we not go? And uh, man, you've sacrificed uh, financially. You have prayed for us. And um, just wanted to say thank you. Thank you guys for doing that. Um, it has, uh, man, meant a lot for us. And so anyway, we've uh, been working months to get a visa. So we needed a visa to go to India. And just really, some countries you can just fly straight to. Fly straight to, and they'll give you a visa on the spot, no problem. Uh, India is not one of those countries that's really hard to get into. And so for months, we were working on applying, getting our paperwork ready for this visa. And so uh, a few days ago, we were approved for a five-year visa. And so, uh, yeah, huge, huge answer to prayer. That was just one of the dozens of things that has, has to fall into place uh, for this to happen. And so... Uh, Saturday, this coming Saturday, in less than a week, we will be leaving, uh, flying to India, where we will um, live for um, a long time. So we're sitting a two or three year mission trip. This is a, we've committed the rest of our lives to seeing this happen. So we'll land in India, and on October 17th, we start language school. So um, we are committed to learning at least two languages. The first one will be Hindi. It's a trade language spoken across northern India. Learn that and at the same time try and build, begin to build up a business um, that will keep us there long term. Um, India isn't really friendly to uh, missionaries and so Callie and I are trying to work on establishing a legitimate business, one that makes, actually makes money, um, will benefit India and the people there and so uh, just a lot of things have to fall into place in order for this to happen. And so our, our, our journey really starts um, in the next coming weeks as we begin going to language school and meeting our neighbors. Um, and so that's going on. And so one announcement I have. Uh, so yeah, so thank you. And uh, man, thanks for your prayer and your support. Uh, if you haven't been getting our monthly newsletters and want to get them, you can sign up in the back. There's a sign-up sheet. Um, over the years, we will be sending out monthly updates, um, how we're doing, you know, what we're doing. Um, anything important happens, Lord willing, it will. Um, yeah, but yeah, you can sign up and get those. Also, we have some cards um, in the back that you can, you know, if you want one of our cards. <laughs> so, yes, thank you, uh, Sulphur Community Church and Blake and the other staff here. Um, man, you guys have been a huge blessing uh, throughout this journey, supporting us, and uh, I'm going to cut it off there. So thank you all. One of the questions I, I, you know, I'm sure everybody asks if you heard, you know, Callie's, uh, Callie's packing, man. She's pregnant, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and that's pretty scary, right? Like everybody's like, whoa, you guys are fixing to just venture off into another country that you only have recently learned a little bit about to spend the rest of your life and you are going now with the child. Does that change anything? That's the big question. I know I had it. And, and I love their response. It's like, you know what? India is the, the most densely populated place on the planet. What's the, what's the uh, population there now? 
1.2 billion people in India. India is about the size of Texas, maybe even a little smaller. I don't know. Like, yeah, not, not much. So, so just picture maybe Texas a little bit bigger, Texas. I don't know. With that many people, densely populated. And so their response is, well, they, you know, they're the most populated place on the planet. It seems like they figured out this child-rearing thing. So we're okay. <laughs> and so I love that attitude. You know, they, it's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's fine. Like, God's there. Um, so as, as, a, as a pastor, I uh, have some opportunities here and there to um, have conversations with people and help them understand Scripture or to, um, to just shine a light on, on some text that they may be struggling with or something like that. It's, and those are, those are some of my most favorite moments. And, and in those moments, sometimes I have the opportunity to share some really hard truths that Jesus says about Scripture. So if someone's struggling personally, um, and, 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 you know, our tendency, our, our nature would be to want to just say whatever comforts in that moment. Whatever makes you feel good in that moment. Well, they didn't know what they were doing. They're this. They've done that to you, and that's wrong. Or we, we want to say all kinds of other things uh, rather than what Scripture would say. And so, because sometimes Scripture is really hard to receive. Um, in in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount alone, he just packs it full of some very, very difficult uh, Scripture. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You mean to tell me the most holy, the most educated, the most theologically robust people in the world, in order for me to see the kingdom of heaven, I've got to be more righteous than they are? That's difficult, Jesus. Some hard truths. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So our, our typical response is, well, what he really meant was, right? That's where we want to go, because surely Jesus isn't saying some of these things. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You're angry with someone, it's like you've murdered them. That's what Jesus says. And he's not making any bones about it. These are hard things that Jesus said. One of the hardest, one of the hardest verses in, in the, the Sermon on the Mount that I believe for all of us, whether you think it is or not, uh, it, it would take some, um, some time alone, some quiet time for you to kind of ponder on this. But one of the toughest ones for all of us so if you are offering your gift at the altar and, you, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's probably the most difficult one for us. You want to worship God? You want God to receive your worship? You know anybody that might have some heartburn with you? that you guys aren't talking right now. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't leave any room for error. He says, you may have not done anything. If you know that your brother has something against you, your worship is unacceptable to me until you go and be reconciled to your brother. Leave your, leave your gift there at the altar. 
I don't want it. I want you to go be reconciled to your brother. Isn't that difficult? And I hope that that kind of lands on us today. That's not even where we're at today. I'm just saying here's some hard things that Jesus says in Scripture. And, and we would tend to want to fashion our interpretation around it and say, well, what Jesus really meant was this, or what, what, what that verse is really saying is this. And so it, what it does then is it lessens the impact that it has on our life. It doesn't ask as much of us now. So we've, we've got in the habit of doing that. And so here we are in John chapter 5. Um, we're going to wrap it up today. And let, let me just give you some background information. Jesus has healed a man. He has gone to this place called Bethesda, this pool where lame and sick people live. And they stay there and they, they, they have this superstition and this religious activity that goes on that when the waters are stirred, they believe that that's an angel stirring the water and the first one in the water can be healed of whatever infirmity they may have, whatever sickness that they may have. And so Jesus, uh, he enters this multitude of people, this multitude of sick people and lame people who are waiting for the waters to be stirred so they could be the first one in. And he approaches this one guy. So in the crowd, Jesus comes to you individually. And he addresses this one man. He says, hey, do you want to be healed? And Jesus goes to him, knows who this man, knows who this man is, what his condition is, and that it's been going on for 38 years. If you're in a wheelchair for 38 years and someone was able to heal you, what would your response be to Jesus when he said, Did you, do you want to be healed? He's not asking a rhetorical question. If you, if, if you have time, please go back and revisit that message so you understand what Jesus is doing in that moment. Jesus is asking this man, do you want your life turned upside down? Do you want your entire identity shaken up and thrown out and, and given a new identity? Are you sure you want to be healed because this changes everything for you? Everything. You sure you want that? So he's, he's on the heels of this, and, and, and one of the things that happens is Jesus instructs this man part of the healing process. He says, you want to be healed, and the man starts giving excuses about why religion is not working and why superstition is not working for him, that he can't get to the pool. He doesn't have anyone, so his friends can't get him healed. He can't get himself healed, and Jesus knows this. Jesus says, but I can heal you. So just don't worry about religious activity. Don't worry about superstitious uh, thought. You want to be healed, get up and pick up your bed. Get up. So here's a beautiful picture of salvation. Think about this. The sovereignty of God and the response of man happening right here. So we always struggle with this. It's just how sovereign is God when it comes to salvation and just how much does man have in, in that game. How many dogs does he have in that fight? Well, Jesus is always asking for a response to faith. You want to be healed? Get up. Respond. It's a beautiful picture of that. And so it sounds wonderful, right? Except that when you pick up your bed on the Sabbath, you're being, you're breaking the law. You're breaking a made-up law. On the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to pick up your bed. You weren't supposed to, that was work, and you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. And, and that, that is true. You were supposed to rest on the Sabbath. But the religious people built a fence around that law and said, this fence is now law. Don't cross the fence. And one of the, one of the, the posts in the fence was that you shouldn't pick up your bed because that could be considered work, and we don't want you to break that law. 
So here we are. The religious regulators have a little bit of heartburn with, with this because Jesus told this man to break the Sabbath, right? And so after some conversation with this man, the, the, the religious leaders, they confront Jesus, and they want to eliminate Jesus for two reasons here. They want to eliminate Jesus because he has, he has, he, he's breaking the Sabbath. He's encouraging people to break the Sabbath. So he needs to be eliminated. But second, and more importantly, he's making himself equal with God, which is blasphemy. And that's immediate death. So they, they want Jesus gone. They want him eliminated. And Jesus has been insinuating that he is God. He's been insinuating. Here's what I mean by this. The Father is working and the Son is working. Verse 17. The Father does, so the Son does. Verse 19. The Father raises the dead and gives life, so the Son raises the dead and gives life. Verse 21. If the Son isn't honored, the Father isn't honored. Verse 23. The Father has life in in Himself, so the Son has life in Himself. Verse 26. And now we're going to get to the the rest of chapter 5 where Jesus turns the heat up in the room a little bit. Because at this point... He has been talking third person. He has been saying, the Father and the Son, 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 right? And so there's a little bit of obscurity that he's he's kind of keeping, uh, maintaining at at that point. So all of last week, as as he equated himself with God, he did so in the third person. He left a little bit of obscurity, and now he's shifting into another gear. No more obscurity about who he is. Verse 30. I can do nothing of my own. Now he's talking first person. I can do nothing of my own, on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has switched from this third person to this first person. And think about this. In this verse, he has switched from defendant to judge. Like how many times did that happen in a courtroom? That he's over here defending himself about what's been going on. No, guys, you don't understand. Here's what I mean. And then in verse 30, he says, I'm judged now. All right, I'm done playing defender and, and defending this son of God. I'm the judge now. And, and that, that's where we're going the, the rest of the time. As he takes his place and presides over these affairs, he begins reminding them, hey, hey, guys, listen, Deuteronomy 19, you know the text that I can't necessarily just give testimony about myself. It's not valid. Look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself... My testimony is not true because we all know that you bring a charge with two or three witnesses. That's what the law said, and they knew the law. And so he's like, guys, you know that I can't just like say this about myself, that there have to be witnesses to this. There has to be testimony to who I am, two or three witnesses. And so let's call some witnesses up. Let's call some people that we need to testify about the accuracy of these claims that I've made. Verse 32 There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Let's get that straight. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So if the evidence of my works these miracles that I'm doing, the, the fact that I just healed this man after he's been an invalid for 38 years, if, the, if that doesn't testify to who I am, is that, if that doesn't validate that I'm the son of God, 
than maybe someone you trust. You guys like John the Baptist, right? Like he was a pretty weird dude. He was out there, but everybody was going to him, man. He had, a, he had a pretty effective ministry going on out there. And so let's go there. Who'd he testify about? He testified about me too. So now we have another witness. We have the works that I've been doing, and now we have John the Baptist himself, the, guys who, the guy who you respect greatly, the guy who you hold in reverence. He also spoke about me, but his testimony isn't really necessary. Right? It's good. And if it gets you there, like if it, if it helps you get to the gospel, then great. But his testimony isn't necessary. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So John hasn't provided enough testimony about me it's not working for you and the miracles the works one that has brought us to this confrontation actually is not speaking of who I am you don't believe that you it's not validating who I am so there's testimony word of mouth that you may hear and then there are works so that you might see but listen here religious people you're blind and you're deaf you're willingly blind and deaf. And that's what he's, he's engaging these people, saying you, you can't see and you can't hear because all the testimony has been set before you and you're not, you're, you're not seeing it. You're not, you're not hearing it. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You don't know God. You haven't seen God because all of your study of Scripture, all of your law-keeping, all of that garbage is defective. Your worship is defective. It's veiled. You can't see it. You can't hear it, and you can't see it. So all of the things that you've been doing to try to put yourself up on this pedestal to make people think that you're really holy and really smart and really religious and real theologically intellectual. It's garbage. It's garbage because you've missed the point. You've missed me in the scriptures. You don't believe me. And here's the reason you don't believe me because God's word is not abiding in you. It's not dwelling with you. And that's why you can't see or hear. Sure, you've read it. You've read the scriptures. You've, you've studied the scriptures. You've taken Bible study methods class. You've done all of these things. You're smart now. You memorize scripture every single week. I know a verse a week that I can just recall now because I've been memorizing scripture. You even received this word. But you're not... You're not dwelling in this word. This word is not abiding in you otherwise you would believe that Jesus is the one sent by the Father to usher in redemption and salvation John, John chapter 5 verse 39 you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life so here we are you want to ask me the verse that stopped me in my tracks this week this one this is the one that stopped me in, a, in my tracks, both for me personally and for you as a church family. This verse 
these two verses stop me. Jesus is talking to people that would make our modern-day scholars look foolish. Understand this, that these, these guys who he was having conversations with, since they were able to read, they began memorizing the Old Testament to where they can just quote books and books and books of the Old Testament to you off memory, word by word by word. So these guys have immersed themselves in these Old Testament scriptures. Immersed themselves. He, we, we, we don't have a clue. Like, we don't have a clue. These guys were elite, brilliant. And this is what he's saying to these guys. He says, guys, you're, you're, you're reading Scripture, okay? So let's get real for a minute. You're, you're reading Scripture. You're doing a pretty good job of it. You're memorizing all of Scripture, and you're missing the whole point. You're missing it. You think that Scripture gives you life. Listen up. Scripture does not give you life. Scripture points us to the life giver, and that's what he's trying to say. So let's not hold the Scriptures in higher esteem than we hold Jesus Christ himself. That's what Christ is trying to say here. Look at verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's, only, there's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He says, you know what? The guy who you hold in the highest esteem has testified about me that I am the Son of God, and that all of these things would come to pass. And here they are in front of you. And now, because you don't believe, you're indirectly calling Moses a liar too. So I don't have to put you up on the stand and convict you as guilty. Moses has already done that. By you believing in that word, but yet not being able to see and receive here, he's already... He's already convicted you of this. You're already done. Indictment after indictment after indictment. Jesus is just laying it on layer after layer after layer. And so, all of these things have been written. We haven't, we haven't written everything, John says, the gospel writer, but these things that we have written were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How many of us have heard that before? Hopefully, week after week, you've been hearing this, right? Because we've been saying it week after week. Why are we going through the Gospel of John? Well, because it was written, the purpose of the book was written uh, so that we, could make, we may believe that Jesus is the Son, the Christ, the Son of God, and be, by believing that we may have life in his name. That's why we have the Scriptures. We don't have the Scriptures to make an idol of the Scriptures. We have the Scriptures to point to the life giver. That's why this is written. And so, yes, the, the gospel writer John wrote his letter so that we may believe in Jesus. But might I say that this entire book has been written so that we may see and believe Jesus and have life in his name. So does this shake anybody up? Like, is anybody 
thinking about this a little bit, that Jesus says to these uh, religious people that were, they're missing the point. So is it possible that we can come to Scripture in a way that misses Scripture? Is it possible for us to receive the revelation of God's Son and not be changed? To, to receive the Word and not abide in us. Absolutely. That's what he's saying here. That you, you hear it, you read it, you can even receive it, but it's not dwelling in you, and that's the problem. So we can know Scripture. We can know a lot. We can study a lot. We can memorize a lot. But it's got to dwell in us. God's Word has to dwell in us to change us. So quickly, we're going to run through what I feel like was that verse that kind of just locked me up right there. I, I felt like we needed to go in this direction a few ways in, in, in how we're not to read our Scriptures and how we're not to read the Bible. So you should not um, read the Bible as God's moral code. Okay, so we don't approach God's Word as a set of guidelines through which if we accomplish those, God's going to be happy with us. This is not our, that's not primarily what, what God's Word is. So let's be clear. Uh, God's law is good. Okay, Let's, I want to be very clear about it. I want you to hear me saying, well, the law is not good, it's bad, and this is this new, new covenant now, and it's all grace and, and, and rainbows and unicorns and just living with Jesus. The, the law is good. As a matter of fact, Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it for us because it's so good. It's so good. So hear me, the, the God's law is good and that we need God's law. It's, it has its place in our life. But if you think that the law was given to you as a set of rules that you were supposed to obey or that you are still trying to obey, you're still trying to, I've got to get this right, I've got to get this right, I've got to do this because that's what it says, you've missed the point of Scripture. And the same thing that Jesus is telling these religious leaders. You're missing the point. You're reading it. You're even trying to practice some of these things, but you've missed the whole point. So God's, God's Word is not our rule book to say, Got that one, got that one, need to work on that one. Got to thank God for grace. Got to, got to do that one, got to do that one. It's not what it was given to us for. All of it's given to point to Jesus. And so we're not to read it as God's law book, his moral code book. And you're not to read the Bible as an encyclopedia. How many of you, by a show of hands, have gone through our new members class? Um, so a good majority of you. One of the things you hear us say as we talk about studying Scripture is that this is not an encyclopedia. But so many times we treat it like an encyclopedia, right? I want to know about marriage. Let's go to the M's, and so I can learn about marriage. What does the Bible say about marriage? I want to know about, um, I want to know about drinking, so let me go to the D's, or let me go to A's for alcohol, and let's see what the Bible says about drinking. I want to know what it says about homosexuality, so let me go to the H's and see what the Bible says about homosexuality. I want to know what the Bible says about adultery, so let me go to the A's and talk about adultery. That's how we use this, and that's not the design for the Scriptures. It's not, it's not an encyclopedia. It's a story. Okay? It's a story. And the way, unless you're a weirdo, it, the, it, the, the story starts, you open the front page, and then you read it all the way to the end. Unless you're a weirdo and you open up the back and read the, the conclusion, then we're not friends anymore because you're weird, and you shouldn't do that. That's just against the rules. I think that's one of the commandments. I'm not sure. So we treat it like an encyclopedia, right? 
We do that so many times, and that's not what it is. The Bible is not this compilation of 66 uh, separate books unrelated, but that's typically how we would read it. And so we're not, we're to read it as a story. It's God's story from front to cover, and it's a story about Jesus. In its most simplest form, can I tell you that all of Scripture is a story about Jesus? And so as you read it, Jesus should be on your heart and on your mind as you read it. And you should not read the Bible as if it's the roadmap to your life. And I realize that some of you might have a coffee cup that says that, that and it's just really not true, okay? That the Bible is not the roadmap to your life. What does the Bible say about marriage? Who should I marry? Or how should I invest my money? Or here's how my, that's not how we read Scripture. Now, Scripture is very applicable to us. I don't want to take that away at all. We're going to get there. Uh, it, it, but it's primarily not about us. Scripture is primarily not about us. The Bible is primarily about God. Primarily. And I'm addressing this, and I'm saying this because there's an epidemic in our world today, and it's a me-centered theology. And we approach Scripture looking for things that concern me. What does the Scriptures have to say to me? How does it affect me? What about me? Scripture's not about you. Your life is not even about you, but especially Scripture. And so you shouldn't read it as an encyclopedia, but as a story, and you shouldn't read it as if it's the roadmap to your life, and you shouldn't read it as if it's a list of heroes that you're supposed to emulate. And we've kind of touched on this before, but right, like Moses overcame fear and approached Pharaoh, so overcome your fears, man, and go after it, you know? Or, or David stood in front of Goliath, so boldly stand before your Goliath and slay them. So many, so many Bible studies and, and sermons have been written saying this garbage. Esther advocated for the marginalized, so go and advocate for the marginalized. Heroes, emulate them, do what they do. These heroes were not given to us to be our heroes, right? And it's, and it's actually funny because God always makes sure in every one of those stories to show us the sinfulness of them, every one of them. So he wants us to make sure, hey, these aren't your heroes, right? They're broken people just like you. They're not perfect. I'm using them for this purpose. I'm using them for this season. That's what I want you to see in that moment. And I'm using them so that you would see Jesus. Right? Jesus is our greater Moses. I'm not. You don't want me trying to play Moses. We're all going down. I want Jesus to be my Moses, right? I want, I want Jesus to be the one who defends me against the onslaught of everything coming my way in life. I want him to be my David. I want him to defeat my giants. I don't have the capacity to do that. I need him to do that. So as you read Scripture and as you see all of these heroes, know that they're given to us to point us to Jesus. That's the point of the whole story. And I hope this kind of opens up your eyes a little bit so we don't read Scripture as a list of, of heroes. They're, they're, they're heroes, okay, but they're redeemed sinners. They're broken. And they're always pointing us to Jesus. They're a type of Jesus for us. And so let me... Let me go ahead and try to land this thing. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. 
Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of heart. The way that we approach and read and study the Bible here as as leaders and and the way that we uh, try to encourage all of you to do the same thing is... Uh, by looking at a passage and asking questions. And that's, that's how we uh, approach Scripture, and that's how we encourage all of you. So if you've gone to Bible study methods class, I don't want to reduce the fact that you've done that uh, because those are the kind of things that we want to encourage you to, as you approach Scripture, don't read it as a me-centered uh, a story, but read it as a Jesus-centered story. So you take a passage that you're studying, and you begin to interrogate that passage. You begin to ask questions in that passage asking, what does this passage mean in light of its context? What is it saying? Who wrote this text? To whom was this text written? Why was this text written? Asking these questions, interrogating all the while. But let me ask you a question. As we do this, especially for my Bible study methods, guys guys and girls who've gone through that class, are we letting the Scriptures interrogate us? Are we letting the scriptures ask us questions? Who are you? To whom do you belong? Why are you here? What is your purpose? See, I think so many times we, it, it's a one-way street as we uh, engage Scripture and say, well, I know about this, and I know about that, and I know what this says, and I know what the context of that. And now, you listen, I set this up for you guys so, so you understand. I gave you the context of this whole passage where we were at, right? So you knew that we've already looked at this passage in light of its context. What's going on in the story right now? What's happening in the story? Well, we started with Jesus healed a guy. I think we talked about that three or four weeks ago. But that's, we had to back up there so you get the context. So it's good. We ask those questions. But also, are we letting the scriptures be a mirror to our lives? You see, that, that, those two verses shut me down this week. Oh, you study the scriptures. You're looking all in there thinking that that's where life comes from. But you know what, Blake? That's not. You're wrong. Life comes from the one whom scripture points to. And you're missing it. And so let's be very, very careful. Are we letting these scriptures interrogate us? Are we letting it ask us who we are and why we exist? And for whom do we exist? And I'd hope that as we repeat over and over and over and we put it on display over and over and over that we exist to make much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nation. So why does Sulphur Community Church exist? Who, to whom do we exist for? Not for ourselves at all. We exist for those in our neighborhood and those to the nations. That's who we exist for. All of Scripture, every bit of it from front to back is the gospel. All of Scripture is the gospel. It's God's story of his people in great need of his redemption. It's God's story of him acting on behalf of the world he loves so deeply by sending Jesus Christ. And it's only accomplished under the sovereign and merciful hand of God himself. And at the same time, there are personal applications in Scripture. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There is application in Scripture for us. That's what it's used for. Though God is at the center of all the Scriptures, there are applications that we can learn by reading, receiving, and remaining in God's Word, abiding in His Word and letting His Word abide in us. And that's, that's, the, that's the big point that Jesus was trying to make. He said, you guys are reading it and you're receiving it, but you're not sitting there dwelling in it, man. You're not letting the word soak into you. And that's the problem. And that's where you're missing me. That's, so a good, a good sure way for us to miss Jesus in the scriptures is, not for us to, is for us to just sit back and not dwell in it, but just to re- read it and say, Bible reading plan done for today. And here's one thing I'll journal about it. Off to work I go. You're going to miss Jesus. You're going to miss him. Can I learn how to manage my finances well by reading scripture? Absolutely. Can I learn how to, can I learn how to care for my spouse well? Absolutely I can. But these are not isolated from the big picture of the gospel. They're not isolated at all. They are part of the gospel. Marriage is the gospel story. That's the big that's the big scandal about marriage, a big trick. Like God did something like marriage wasn't even about us. Like marriage is not even about marriage, it's about him. Right? And he's just given that to us first, you know, for, for his glory, but a gift to us too. So it's, 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 it's yes, it can be, I, I can learn how to love my wife as, as Christ loved the church and by reading scripture. I can, I can learn how to uh, serve my husband well by reading scripture, right? So, so yes, there's application here. And they're not isolated. These are, these, all these applications in scripture are empowered by the gospel. All of it. And so, I'm going to close up and I'm just going to maybe make a broad statement to say that every square inch of scripture, every square inch of the, their scriptures so, so whenever Jesus was having these conversations with these guys, uh, the New Testament didn't exist. So when he was talking about the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. It's the only thing they knew at the time. New Testament's, the story's happening before our eyes, right? And so he's saying, you search those Scriptures. So for the community church, we, we search these Scriptures, right? And they're all about Jesus. Every, every single verse, every single word is about Jesus. Jesus. They're not life in themselves. They point us to the life giver. So I'll kind of set the story up as we close. You can flip in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. And um, what's going on at this point is Jesus has, um, he has rose from the dead. Resurrection has happened and he approaches um, his disciples, but he hasn't let them in on who he is. I don't know how he does that, but that happened a couple times in scripture where he's like, Jesus was there, but no one knew he was there. It's like, man, he's Okay, but he did it because he's Jesus. And so he starts having this conversation like, hey, guys, what's going on? And he's like, dude, you haven't heard what's going on? Like all of Jerusalem right now knows what's going on. Where have you been? So, you know, we was following this great teacher. Um, Man, he did some miraculous things, obviously sent by God, uh, but he was claiming to be the son of God. We just had this moment a couple days ago where they pinned him up on a cross and it's, you know, the party's over. We thought that was going to be our guy, too. We thought that he was going to come and snuff out the Roman rule. 
and set up shop and set up his kingdom because that's what we've read in Scripture this whole time. But obviously not because he's dead now. And so Jesus could have done a number of things here, right? Jesus had a lot of options right here. And I would have probably went for the I told you so option, like, bam, here I am, I told you so kind of thing. But he didn't. Instead, he says, well, we should have a Bible study. We, let's have a Bible study, guys. He says, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said, let's have a Bible study. We're just going to go through the Old Testament. Sit down right here. We're going to read all these. I'm going to show you some things in scripture, right? And, and so he does all of these things, and then they break bread, and they have a meal, and and then at the end, and this is, I'll, I'll close with reading this verse, verse 44, if you would go there. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, revealing himself now, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand scriptures. You get that? He gave them a Bible study. And they still didn't understand. He had to, God had to do a work in them. He opened up their minds so that they would understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, Mark and Callie, Sulphur Community Church, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Let's pray.